So this is one of my favorite things to talk about in the temple. We've been washed, anointed, clothed, named. Now we are ready to go in and participate in the presentation of the endowment. Now we come into that second part, and now we're prepared for to make covenants. We are going to make five significant covenants. And we'll talk about those covenants one by one. We'll focus on the doctrine, the ordinance of those covenants, so that we all understand that's exactly what I'm covenanting to do. But the brilliant thing about the endowment is he does, we don't just walk into a room and make five covenants and then walk out. The endowment is presented with a backdrop of a story. He weaves the covenants into a story. And I don't know if you've ever pondered and said, why is he telling me this story? And what does this story have to do with these covenants? The day I finally connected those two dots was one of the biggest connections of my life. What does this story have to do with those five covenants? Now, what I love, I think the Lord is such a brilliant teacher. He says, I'm going to put some things in the scriptures and not in the temple. Have you been? Long time, no see. How you been? So good to see you. No. The Lord is brilliant. He says, I'm going to put some things in the scriptures and not in the temple. And we'll talk about a couple of those things that are not in the temple that are right there in the scriptures. Other things, he says, I'm going to put in the temple and not in the scriptures. There are doctrines that are presented in the temple that I can't turn to book, chapter, and verse. And I have to rely on those who've been to the temple, and I have to speak in code so that those who've been to the temple, oh, I see, oh my goodness, that's the answer, and we connect dots. So what is the reason for the story he's telling you? And what does the story have to do with the five covenants? So today I want to answer two questions. I don't even know if you've asked the questions, but two significant questions, doctrinal questions that come up and they're all related to the story he's telling us. Number one, why did God give two conflicting commandments in the Garden of Eden? We've got to answer that question. And number two, what was Satan trying to do? Why is heavenly, when the credits roll, you know, at the end of life, when the credits roll for this life, where will Satan's name be? You know how they put the biggest stars first, you know, starring Jesus, Adam, Eve. Where will Satan's name appear in the credits? Personal opinion, not even there. He was not a major character in this life. My battle in mortality is not to conquer Satan. That victory was won in a garden called Gethsemane years ago. That is not my victory. I'm not here to conquer Satan. I'm here to conquer me and the natural man inside me. That's what all those ordinances coming into the temple has taught me. So why? Does Satan play such a prominent role in the story he's telling me in the temple? 
That doesn't fit. That's an anomaly, right? Satan is not a major character. And yet he plays a very significant role. So why the emphasis on Satan? What was he really trying to do? And I don't know if you've ever, we're going to see if we can stitch it all together. What was Satan trying to do in the Garden of Eden? And why is Heavenly Father telling me that story? Because true or false, Satan accomplished his goal in the Garden. False. His goal was two-step, A and B. Did he accomplish A? Yes. Did he accomplish B? No, he was stopped. Satan was stopped. Now, that's the story. It's not that Satan is the character. It's the fact that God stopped Satan is the story. So what was plan B? What was part B of his plan? Let's see if we can answer those questions. We're going to answer those two doctrinal questions. Why does Heavenly Father give two conflicting commandments in the Garden of Eden? And number two, what was Satan trying to accomplish in the Garden? And what do those two questions have to do with my endowment and the covenants that I make? All right, question number one. Now again, I love that I can point to the scriptures and tell you what's in the scriptures that's not in the temple. That's easy, and I'm welcome to do that in this building. But I'm a little handicapped at telling you, well, there's certain things that are in the temple and not in the scriptures. I'm a little handicapped in talking openly about certain things that are only presented in the temple and not in the scriptures. So I'm going to speak in code. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, just chalk this away for someday, and you'll maybe, it'll maybe make sense someday. But Heavenly Father gave two commandments in the Garden of Eden. The first and foremost has been repeated numerous times, and the proclamation on the family has established that this commandment is still in effect. The first commandment has never been altered. And what was that commandment? That is commandment number one. We are to multiply and replenish the earth. Heavenly Father's plan does not work. His plan is dependent on us obeying that commandment. If your parents had not obeyed that commandment, you would not be a participant in this plan. And so we owe it to Heavenly Father to obey that commandment to make his plan work. So that commandment has never, ever changed. We are commanded to multiply and replenish the earth. But then Heavenly Father says, but don't partake of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, how in the world can they obey the, per, can, how, how do they obey the first commandment? By partaking of the tree. But they've been told not to partake of the free. So if they obey, in order to obey the first, they have to break the second. And if they obey the first, the second, they'll never obey the first, right? Do you see the problem now is Heavenly Father, is that, Typical of our Heavenly Father, that He sets us up to fail, that He puts us in a no-win situation. That doesn't, that's an anomaly. And as I search the scriptures, that's not Heavenly Father's way. He never sets us up to fail. He never says, you have to break my commandments in order to succeed. So there's got to be more to the story. And the answer to this question is taught in the temple and not in the scriptures. So allow me to speak in code. 
I have, now this is all theoretical. I'm not trying to make you think I have, uh, this, is a, this is not a true story. Don't think that if you ever meet my son, you'll say, oh, you're the one that did that. Okay, no. Totally hypothetical situation, okay? Um, we have a vehicle that we allow our teenagers to drive. It's our teenage car, and when you turn 16, you get to drive the teenage car. But, you know, the rule is you have to ask mom and dad. You have to ask mom and dad to be able to use the car. And quite often, mom and dad, oh, sure, and we hand you the keys. And, oh, you bet, take the keys. And, oh, yeah, you can't. Oh, um, no, not right now. Mom and dad are the ones that distribute the keys. Well, one day, mom and dad say, we're going to go away. But we'll come back. And we'll give you more instructions. And while mom and dad are gone, my 14-year-old wants to drive the car. Now, mom and dad aren't around. I don't know what to do because mom and dad are the ones that give away the keys. So my 19-year-old steps up and says, hey, I'm in charge. Mom and dad are gone. I'm in charge. It's okay. And my 19-year-old hands the keys to my 14-year-old and says, go ahead and drive the car. And my 14-year-old gets in the car and drives away, and because he's completely inexperienced, gets into an accident. So mom and dad come back, after we promised we'd come back. Mom and dad come back. Who's getting in trouble? Is the 14-year-old gonna get in trouble? No. Who's gonna get in trouble? The 19-year-old is gonna get in trouble. Now, let me tell you what the 19-year-old says to the parents. Hey, I was doing what you do all the time. I was just doing what you do. I was not doing anything that hasn't been done before. I've seen you give the keys to a child dozens of times, hundreds of times. That's not unheard of. Well, you're punished. And he gets mad. Here's the key. If you understand my code, the important lesson is that the 19-year-old gets mad that he gets punished. Why would the 19-year-old get mad that he's getting punished? What does that mean? If he says, hey, I'm just doing what I've seen you do. Why is he getting mad that he's punished? I'm copying you and you didn't get in trouble. I'm copying you and you didn't get in trouble. Now, do you understand what I'm trying to say? What's the point I'm trying to make? Satan handed the fruit to Adam and Eve before it was time. If he got mad about getting in trouble, 
it means someone did what he did and didn't get in trouble, right? That's why he's getting mad. He's getting upset that someone else did what he's doing and he didn't get in trouble. So I think we can deduce from that that what eventually would have happened in the garden? Were those two permanent commandments or was one of them temporary? What would have happened someday? I would suggest to you that eventually, Heavenly Father, pluck, pluck, eat. It's time. But you must choose. It has to be your choice. So I would suggest to you that one thing that he's trying to teach us is that that second commandment was temporary. Let me give you an analogy. I don't see any wedding rings. Is that right? Anyone's married? None of you are married. True or false, all of you are under the command to multiply and replenish the earth. None of you are doing a very good job at it. <laughs> true or false, you are expected to multiply and replenish the earth. True? Do I all agree that's true? Do we all agree that you're all breaking that commandment? Do we all agree that every one of you in this room, now I've had 10 kids, so I'm okay, Lord. But none of you are obeying that commandment. You are all sinners. Now, none of you are concerned about that, right? You all hold temple recommends, and you're all considered in good standing in the church, and yet you're complete sinners. So why aren't you bothered by that? Why aren't you considered a sinner if you're not obeying the most important commandment? Why not? Because it's a timing thing. You know that the command to not do it is a temporary command, and someday when the circumstances change, things will change, right? I would suggest the same thing was true of Adam and Eve. So, lesson number one. Satan's most common tactic is to try and get you to do something when it's the wrong time to do it. I think that's a great lesson. You are making covenants in an environment where Satan is trying to mess up the timing. He wants you to do something good. He just wants you to do it when it's not the right time to do it. So, Satan's plan was, A, get Eve to partake. before it's time. Now, do you see the similarity in all of the sins he tempts us to do today? Tell me what Satan is doing today. He's getting Eve to partake before it's time. Almost all, almost every sin you can think of is a temptation to partake before it's time. What then was part B? So there's one answer. I would suggest the second commandment was a timing. In other words, Satan had to do the, good, the right thing before it was time. So Eve is now a transgressor. Adam and Eve are transgressors, not because they did something really bad. 
It's because they did something very good before it was time to do it. So now he's got them in that situation where they have transgressed. What was plan B? What was part B? Now, this is where the scriptures answer the question that the temple doesn't. This is where we have to turn to the scriptures. So I'm going to let those of you who know, let's let the, everyone else learn from the scriptures. Let me point out, this is where one puzzle piece is put in the scriptures and not in the temple. We just saw a puzzle piece put in the temple and not in the scriptures. So turn with me to Alma chapter 5. What was part B of Satan's plan? Alma chapter 5. Oh, sorry, Alma 12, not 5. We're going to read from verse 5. But Alma chapter 12, and then find Alma chapter 42. Let's do both of those. Find Alma 5 and Alma 42. And look at the setting, right? What's the setting? Alma 12 is? Alma 12 and Alma 42. Alma 12 is Zeezrom in Ammoniah, wicked city. Why does this come up in a wicked city? And I think it's significant that it comes up in this setting. So let's start in Alma chapter 12. Uh, sorry, let me get to the Book of Mormon. Alma 12. Okay, let's read verse 21. Now, this is where Zeezrom is trying to trip up Alma and Amulek. He hasn't yet been converted. He's trying to trip them up. So he's asking them very difficult questions. Now, Alma chapter 11, Amulek just taught about the resurrection and living forever, immortality. So Zeezrom's kind of a sarcastic trip you up question is verse 21. Alma 12:21. What does the scripture mean, which saith that God placed cherubim in the flaming sword on the east of the Garden of Eden, lest our parents should enter and partake of the fruit of the tree of life and live forever? And thus we see that there was no possible chance that they should live forever. So what did, Alma just, what did Amulek just teach in chapter 11? That we're going to be resurrected and live forever. Do you see what Zeezrom's trying to do? Um, God put cherubim and the flaming sword in front of the tree so that they wouldn't live forever. And you just said we're supposed to live forever. This is a total attempt to trip up a prophet. But in that setting, the prophet teaches the doctrine. Why are we told the story of cherubim and the flaming sword? Verse 12. This is the thing I was about to explain. Now we see that Adam did fall by the partaking of the forbidden fruit, according to the word of God. And thus we see that by this fall, all mankind became a lost and a fallen people. Now behold, I say unto you, ready? See if you can tell me what part B was. If it had been possible for Adam to have partaken of the fruit of the tree of life at that time, there would have been no death and the word would have been void making god a liar for he said if thou eat thou shalt surely die do you see it what was satan's plan get them to partake of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil before its time and then rush them over and have them partake 
of the tree of life. That was Satan's plan. Now, what does it do? First of all, number one, according to this verse, what would that do? If they had partaken of the tree of life immediately, Eve partakes, Adam partakes, and then they rush over and they partake of the tree of life, what would it have done? Number one, verse 23. Who do we take out in verse 23? We take out God. We make God a liar and we take out God. So now there's no God. But now, how does it destroy us? How does Adam and Eve partaking of the tree of life destroy us? Ponder that, for example. We're going to let the scriptures answer it. But ponder that. How, do, how does this act? I can see that it destroys God because it makes him a liar. But how does it destroy us? Now, keep one page in Alma 12 and open up Alma 42. We're going to come back to chapter 12. I want this to be a second witness, but go to Alma chapter 42, to Alma teaching his son Corianton, another wayward soul. Alma chapter 42. All right, ready? Verse five. Someone read it for me. Alma 42, five. Dion? For behold, if Adam had come forth his hand immediately and partaken of the tree of life, he would have lived forever according to the word of God, having no space for repentance. Yea, and also the word of God would have been void, and the great plan of salvation would have been frustrated. Okay, I'm gonna... I'm going to ask you to repeat the phrase from the scriptures. How would that destroy all mankind? How would it frustrate the plan of salvation? Satan's plan was what? One more time. I need you to say that a hundred times. Satan's plan was to take away a space for repentance. Now, why does Heavenly Father tell us this story as we're making covenants? This was one of the biggest aha moments of my whole life. What was Satan's plan? Take away our space to mess up and learn and grow and try again and repent. Satan's plan was to remove the space between the trees. Now tell me, when do you and I partake of the tree of knowledge? When baptized? Is it baptism? When do we partake of the tree of knowledge? That's what ushered in mortality. When do we become mortal? That's birth. So we've got to go a little bit before baptism, right? I understand the covenants and I know 
I, I know what we're trying to say, but if we really want to push this to when, what's the most likely time, when, am I, when do I most fit that moment where I usher in mortality to myself, I become immortal. This is my birth. A mortal. I become a mortal. Not immortal, a mortal. Now tell me, again, think, when do I partake of the tree of life? If that was the moment they become immortal, when do I partake of the tree of life? It's not death, is it? It's well beyond death. When do I partake of the tree of life? Resurrection. What does Heavenly Father intend the space between those trees to be? What does he call it? He calls it. Now go back to verse 4. What does he call it in verse 4? A probationary state. Now tell me what a probationary state is. Unfortunately, in, England, in the United States, we've corrupted that word. We need to change the word because when I say probation, you think of someone coming out of prison and trying to come back into society. They're on probation. That's not how the scriptures refer to it. Let me give you a different probation. Many of you are coming to the end of your college years, right? As you graduate from college and you enter the workforce, let me use, uh, name a career. Architecture. Architecture, that's a tough one. Architecture is a tough career. And you, you can't even make money with it with a bachelor's degree. You have to have a master's degree. It's a tough career. So you just graduated with a master's degree in architecture and I own an architecture firm. Why in the world would I hire you? What are the chances you can draw plans as well as the guy that's worked for me for 30 years? If I have a million dollar account and someone's saying, I need you to design this massive building, why in the world would I hire you? I've got a guy who's been an architect for 30 years. Who am I gonna give the project to? So why would I hire you? Tell me. Because he's gonna retire. And I need you to be what he is. So I know you're not as good. I know your plans are gonna have mistakes in them. But why do I have you draw them? To learn and to grow and to become what he is. So when I hire you, I put you on probation. What does that mean? In this sense, what does it mean? I'm very, very tolerant of your imperfections. I'm very tolerant of your mistakes because you're what? You're learning. So if you draw your first set of plans and they're full of mistakes, do I fire you? No. Now, someday, if you're continually making those mistakes, will I fire you? But not while you're on probation. Do you see the concept? So what does Heavenly Father intend the space between these trees to be? 
a probationary state. What did he do to preserve your probationary state? He stopped Satan. This we can deal with. We, we can make this work. This does not end the plan of salvation. That does. So Heavenly Father, where, where does he draw the line? Tell me where he draws the line. I will not let you take that away. I will not let you take that away. It will stop you right there. Tell me what he's trying to say. Why is he telling this story in the endowment? This is one of the most important connections I think you can make. Why is he telling me this story in the environment, in the environment of me making sacred covenants? What's he saying? I know you're not going to be perfect. I know you're not going to be perfect. I don't expect you to be perfect. That's the story he's telling me. I would not let Satan take that away. I know you're not going to be perfect. You're on probation. I grant you. I love the wording here. Look at verse 4. There was a time granted unto man to repent. God granted you time to mess up. Do you see why I love the fact that this story is being told when I make the highest and most sacred covenants of my life? You're going to mess up, Bryce. I know you are, and I expect you to, but I expect you to learn from them and grow. <clears throat> now, I have a theory. When this didn't work, I have a theory. I think Satan said, this one got foiled. So he went on to see. See is to convince you to take this away of yourself. I don't know a group of people harder on themselves than temple attending people. If you treated me the way you treat yourself, you'd be a horrible friend. You'd be the worst friend in my life. That would not be okay for you to treat me the way you treat yourself. So why is it okay to treat yourself that way? Do you see the temptation? If I can't get all of you, if I can't take away all of your probationary state, I'm going to tempt each of you to take it away. I'm going to tempt each of you to expect yourselves to be perfect and to tear yourselves down if you're not. Now tell me if he's succeeding at that. Tell me if he has succeeded at convincing you to take this away from yourself. Do you grant yourself a probationary state? Do you allow yourself to make mistakes and learn from them and grow? Or do you tear yourself up every time you make a mistake? 
I would guess if we're all honest, we would all admit that our greatest anxiety has been what? I'm not good enough. Your greatest anxiety has been that you don't think you're good enough. You haven't done enough. You're not where you should be. And you tear yourselves up over and over again. I would guess that has been your greatest source of anxiety. Now, do you see why I love this story so much? Why does Heavenly Father tell it over and over again? Every time I go to the temple, I hear about cherubim and the flaming sword. At what point does the light need to go on to say, oh, he has granted me a probationary state. When am I going to grant one to myself and to others? How many of you expect other people to be perfect and get a little intolerant of their imperfections? How many of you were raised in a family where your parents were intolerant of your imperfections? and didn't grant you a probationary state. How many of you judge other people in your ward? How many of you have broken up a relationship because he or she wasn't good enough? We are really bad at granting a probationary state to ourselves and to other people. But guess who's really good at it? your Heavenly Father. His expectations for you are very different than your expectations for yourself. And one of the stories you need to hear over and over again is that He intended this life to be a probationary state. He intended you to make many, many mistakes but to learn and to grow and be smarter and to stop tearing yourself up because you make mistakes. How many of you relive the mistake you made a thousand times in your head and you're beating yourself up for what you said or what you did instead of simply saying, hmm, I'm not going to do that again and learn and grow. Do you see why this lesson is so significant? Do you see why it's the backdrop of the temple? Make covenants inside this story where God grants a probationary state. Let's read them again. Alma 42, 4. And then we'll go back to Alma 12. Who wants Alma 42, 4? I need you to hear this. A thousand times you need to hear this. The next time you make a mistake and you tear yourself up for it, you need to hear this scripture. Who will read it? Alma 12. No, Alma 42, 4. And thus we see that there was a time granted unto man to repent, yea, a probationary time, a time to repent and serve God. Now back to Alma 12. Who wants Alma 12? Let's read verse 23. We read, or sorry, 24. We read 23. Now let's read 24. Go read it. And 
we see that death comes upon mankind, yea, the death which hath been spoken of by Amulek, which is the temporal death. Nevertheless, there was a space granted unto man in which he might repent. Therefore, this life became a probationary state, a time to prepare to meet God, a time to prepare for that endless state which hath been spoken of by us, which is after the resurrection of the dead. Okay, someday, yeah, someday I need to be perfect, but not today. Not today. Grant yourself a probationary state. Grant other people, grant your children a chance to grow. Grant your spouse a probationary state. We are all here to make mistakes and to learn and to grow. Can I show you what your Heavenly Father's expectations are? Let me show you a couple scriptures that reveal Heavenly Father's expectations. Ready? A couple of my favorites. We could spend a lot of time here. Here's two of my very favorites. Let's go to the allegory of the tame and the wild olive tree that kept growing bad fruit, right? And he kept trying to help the tree grow good fruit. How patient was he with the tree? How many times does he say, I don't want to lose the tree. I don't want to lose the tree. But these two verses really stand out to me. So go to Jacob chapter 5, which is really an Old Testament scripture. This is Zenos in the Old Testament, but it was preserved to us through the Book of Mormon and taken out of the Bible. Jacob chapter 5, that whole allegory of the tame and the wild olive tree. But what kind of God do we have? 65 and 66. Who wants to read? Jacob 5, 65 and 66. Dion, this is what Heavenly Father expects of you. Ready? And as they begin to grow, you shall clear away the branches which bring forth bitter fruit according to the strength of the good and the size thereof. And you shall not clear away the bad thereof all at once. What? Say that last part again. Three more times. I need you to say that three more times. And you shall not clear away the bad thereof all at once lest the roots thereof should be too strong for the graft, and the graft thereof shall perish. You clear away the bad as the good grows. His expectation is not that you are bad free and that you have no bad fruit on you. His expectation is as the good grows, you remove the bad. That's his expectation. 66, Dion. For it grieveth me that I should lose the trees of my vineyard. Wherefore, you shall clear away the bad according as the good shall grow. That's good. That's a very realistic expectation, isn't it? Why is it that you are so hard on yourself when you're not perfect? When Heavenly Father has that expectation. Clear away the bad as the good gets stronger and stronger and stronger. That's his realistic expectation. Can I do that? Can you do that? Now, here's another one. Section 117 of the Doctrine and Covenants. This is, might be my most favorite. Doctrine and Covenants, section 117. Oliver Granger. Oh, I can't wait to meet Oliver Granger. Doctrine and Covenants, Doctrine and Covenants 117. When I meet Oliver Granger, guess what? He's just going to be an ordinary guy. And that's the best part about this whole story. Oliver Granger. Let me read verse 12. Section 117, verse 12. Again, I say unto you, I remember my servant Oliver Granger, 
Behold, I say unto him that his name shall be had in sacred remembrance from generation to generation, forever and ever, saith the Lord. Therefore, let him try his best. He was given a very difficult task. There's no way he would succeed. Let him try his best. And when he falls, not if, when he falls, he shall rise again. Why? For his sacrifice is more sacred to me than his increase. His sacrifice is more sacred than his increase. Which one of those do you measure in yourself? Increase. I'm not where I should be. How many times have you gotten down on yourself because you're not where you should be? You're not doing what you should have been doing by now. I'm not where I should be. Guess what you're measuring? Increase. Guess what Heavenly Father measures? Effort. The number of times you got up. When he falls, he shall rise again. And I'm going to count those. Every time he got back up and tried again. That's what I count. And you're doing better than you thought. You're here trying to keep temple covenants because you keep getting up every time you fall. And Heavenly Father is saying, you're doing great. You're exactly where you should be. So you're saying that goes for any kind of sin? Any sin, you are trying your best to overcome. Now, notice he says, when he falls, he shall. So are there those who never rise again? Yes. But yes, it goes for anyone and any kind of sin. We could go on and on and on. How about the one in uh, section 121? Many are called, but few are chosen. And why are they not chosen? And then he gives four reasons. Sin doesn't ever bother the Lord. The thing, if you're doing come follow me, is Jesus ever bothered by sin? What bothers him? What, what causes Christ to react negatively? When does he get mad in the Bible, in the New Testament? Hypocrites. It's never sin. It's hypocrisy. He doesn't get mad. He eats with sinners. He blesses sinners. He follows sinners. But hypocrites, that's what makes him upset. It's not weakness that's the problem. It's rebellion that's the problem. There's a big difference between weakness and rebellion. Well, back to section 121. Many are called, but few are chosen. What does he rebuke? It's not sin he rebukes. It says, when we undertake to cover our sins. We are so hard on ourselves for imperfection. 
I would plead with you that you understand the story he's trying to tell you. You make covenants and the backdrop is a story where he's trying to say, I, God, I, the Lord, have granted you a probationary state. When are you going to grant it to yourself? I think that's a great lesson. And I love that story. I testify to you that your Heavenly Father is kinder and more patient and more understanding and more forgiving than you can possibly imagine. It does, sin is not what bothers Him. Hypocrisy is what bothers Him. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Mm-hmm.